You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I am your host, Jordan Weissman, and I'm back this week with another solo standalone episode. But it's it's a good one. It's a really good one. I am talking with John Forrest Dolan. He is the director of the New York City Aquarium out in Coney Island. And, you know, when I interview people for working, I tend to kind of mentally place the conversations into three different types of buckets. Their first is classic working. This is the sort of version that David Plotz, when he started this show years ago, pioneered, right? And that's what you really do every single day, the minutia of your job when you get in at 9 a.m. and you go from there. That's classic working, what you do. Then there's a second bucket, and I feel like a lot of my episodes have been about this, which is what's the point of your job? How do you fit into this world? Why do you exist? Justify yourself. Um, How do you fit into the weed economy or the functioning of a museum? Then there's this third bucket. And this is what I find the conversations tend to become when I'm talking to directors or small business owners, CEOs, people like that, which is what do you think about when you are doing your job? What is on your mind, right? Because people who run organizations, they're delegating a lot of stuff. They're in meetings, they're sending emails. A lot of it is just thinking about the organization and what it is that they are spending their mental energy on. And that's what this conversation is. You know, part of it is he spends a lot of time thinking about the ways he can teach the public and especially kids about conservation and local ecology and, you know, what exists in the oceans in and around New York City and kind of bring that to life for people. And the other part of it is the sheer terror about the possibility that all the fish could die if something goes wrong with the plumbing or something else goes awry at this place. And that's the tension. There's this high-minded part and then there's the real just basic logistics part of keeping the sharks from dying. It's really interesting. I had a lot of fun talking to him. I hope you enjoyed This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. What's your name and what do you do? My name is John Forrest Dolan, and I am the director of the Wildlife Conservation Society's New York Aquarium. And you're wearing the shirt. I try to logo myself out wherever I go. <laughs> is do you always wear the, the logo? Is that like no, the uniform? Actually, <laughs> I, I had to actually do a on-air media this morning, so I had to make sure oh, I was represented. You had to rep. Yeah. Otherwise, rep I try to go, you know, mufti and anonymous. So tell me about the aquarium. What do you want to yeah, know, exactly. <laughs> What is the New York City Aquarium? Let's start well, there. So let's start with it. So the uh, New York Aquarium is owned by the Wildlife Conservation Society, which yeah. is one of the four largest conservation NGOs in the world. Most people don't know that. So we are spread out in two sort of non-overlapping areas. One is we do global conservation field work and policy work on the international and national forums all over the world. And we are on the ground rescuing wildlife. We're based out of New York. So in New York, we, in addition to that global conservation footprint, we have four facilities 
that are zoos and one that is an aquarium, right? So we run the Bronx Zoo and the New York Aquarium. And then there's three smaller city zoos, Central Park, Prospect Park, and Queens. So you guys are responsible for a, a not insignificant chunk of my childhood. Yeah, no, exactly. And, <laughs> and, and that's honestly, it's funny you should say that because yeah. that's the best part of my job and the part I enjoy the most and the part I sort of think about the most, which is we have a great influence on, I, you are not the first person, believe it or not, who has said to me, oh, I went to the aquarium when I was a kid and I have been back since. So I think a lot about that, that responsibility of what we tell kids and how we inspire kids. And then also what comes after that, right? Because you went to the aquarium when you were a kid and now, you know, it looks like you're a grown person. Most of the way there. (laughs) How can I get you back? How can I get you to think differently about what an aquarium is? And how can I sort of lead in the city this conversation about the wildlife that exists in the waters around us? Tell me about the aquarium. I mean, how big an operation is it? And on a scale of like one to SeaWorld, I mean, what, what are we talking here? Okay, so if one is your home aquarium, right, with guppies it's, in it. Yeah, my tank. And a hundred is SeaWorld or Disneyland. We're probably, I don't know, hovering around 70, 75. So you're a fairly large aquarium. We are. We're 14 acres. So yeah. just like in terms of footprint, we're big. There are bigger aquariums. There are lots of smaller aquariums. And, I, you know, in large part because we are part of a large conservation organization, we have a sort of disproportionately large reputation and say in conservation issues among public aquaria. So it's good. We see about 750,000 people through our gates every year, which is a lot. It's the biggest cultural institution in Brooklyn. So that says something. Yeah, and you guys, you're down on the near the boardwalk. We are right on the ocean that we yeah. want to inspire you Coney about, Island. which is really cool. Yes, yeah. we are in Coney Island, the famous Coney Island. We shimmer and shake. And we're going to be in the mermaid parade on Saturday. So that's going to be awesome. What are we talking for fauna here? Or, you know, what kind of fish and, and wildlife do you, do you have on display? What's your, what's your big draw? Well, the biggest thing in terms of meeting guest experiential expectations is the new shark exhibit that we opened just last year. And it's big, both literally, it's 58,000 square feet of shark, 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 shark. It's big because it's the first thing that the aquarium has opened post-Sandy. So it really sort of changes the landscape. We're, you know, demolished by Sandy and we've only been half open since. And it's also our first real honest attempt to say, how can our work at the aquarium really speak to conservation right here in New York? Because sharks are really great. And one of the greatest things about sharks is that there's 26 species found in New York waters. So it's a really good way to talk about this thing that everybody's fascinated with. Do you guys actually have like the local sharks yeah, on display? So yeah, that kind of the Not only do we have the local sharks on yeah. display, so there's 14 species of sharks and of those five or six of them are local species that, that we display. But we also do research work with those same species out in the waters around New York. So it's a really great tie-in between the work that we do ex situ in the aquarium and the work that we do in situ in the actual field, studying these animals, tagging and learning about their lives. So you got sharks, that's a big draw for kids, but then what what other kinds of animals? What else do we have? So we have have marine mammals. So we have sea lions, we have harbor seals, which are found in the waters around New York again. We have uh, sea otters, which are adorable. adorable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, comes to mind. So of those marine mammals, most of them are either rescued animals or born in captivity. But they do tell great stories about populations around us. So the marine mammals are great. We do a, a show in our aqua theater. It's called the Sea Lion Celebration that really shows how incredible these animals are, how intelligent they are the sort of complex behaviors they exhibit and the bonds they have with their keepers. And then we have over 
11, 12,000 individual animals that range from sponges all the way up to sharks, right? So we have your whole sort of gamut of invertebrates, sea stars, jellyfish, all sorts of great stuff like that, octopus, cephalopods, and then ranging right on up to those marine mammals that we talked about. Do you guys have any you know, dolphins, whales, anything like that? I'm sure it's something some listeners are curious no, about. No, and it's a question that is funny because about 15 years ago, so around 2004, the early 2000s, we really looked at the – we did have – we had beluga whales and we had Atlantic dolphin, bottlenose dolphin. And we looked at the way we were keeping – we've been around since – in Coney Island since 1957. We've been in existence since 1896. So obviously – paradigms have shifted since then and sort of standards of care and thought about how to keep these animals in the best conditions. And we looked at it completely voluntarily and said, you know, we're not doing this. We don't have the facilities to do this right. Others do, we think, but we don't. And to upgrade our facilities to do that is not worth it either financially or from the standpoint of the cultural conversation around these animals. So we moved our animals out to other facilities. The uh, beluga whales went down to Georgia Aquarium, which has a really huge exhibit, and the bottlenose dolphin went down to SeaWorld, I believe. I'm not exactly sure. Mm -hmm. So we voluntarily got out of that well before the sort of larger, you know, sensitivities yeah. around cetaceans in captivity came. Till the blackfish moments. So yeah, no, happens. exactly. Yeah. And and I have to say that I, I'm super happy that we made that decision because we made it for the right reason, not for the wrong reason on either side of that conversation. And also just because I've been able to sort of sit back from that conversation and learn a lot from it. What's your background? How does one become hmm. the director of an aquarium? I, I, have, that, I, I have no concept of what that career yeah. path well, <laughs> neither do I, surprisingly, Jordan. <laughs> I think I took an unusual path to become an aquarium director, but I don't think it's unprecedented in the sense. I think most people who wind up in this position take a rather winding road because one of the things I've learned and one of the reasons why I love my job is that it's really wide-ranging. It rewards a sort of broad suite of interests and calls upon those. So I have an undergraduate degree from Humboldt State University, Go Jacks. Um, jacks? Yeah, lumberjacks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Imagine like playing Yeah, jacks, right, exactly. Like, Go your... jacks, pick up sticks. So I have, a, I have an undergraduate degree in biology, and I was always from the time I was a little kid fascinated with animals, fascinated with nature, fascinated with environment and how all those things went together. But in addition to those fascinations, I've always been really into music and art and things like that. So when I got to college and I was getting my degree in science and biology, there was a real struggle between the those two sort of poles of my interests, right? And I wound up, instead of being a focused, diligent biology student, I wound up uh, working in bars and running nightclubs and getting into a music scene in a college town that was really great. And so it took me 10 years to get my degree. I'm just going to, mom, dad, I'm sorry. <laughs> Just doing your your organic yeah. chem homework like on the bar. Yeah, was, you laugh. But yeah, the best was I was working on a goat farm, and I would you know tend a bar and run a nightclub and get home at like four o'clock in the morning and stay up because I had to milk at five. Why were and you then, working at a? Because I loved it. Because it was really great. It was you know that's like I said two poles of interest. So at any rate, I got my degree in biology and realized through that course of that study that you know temperamentally I was not going to be anybody's idea of a great scientist. And I hadn't really found anything within that that wasn't, you know, purely intellectual interest that really clicked with me. So I sort of kept following my interests in art, but I wanted to be practical. So I actually got my act together and went to graduate school and got my master's degree in architecture. Okay. 
right here in New York. And so now I'm in New York City when I did. I'm thinking about mom and dad again. Yeah, mom, said, you <laughs> spent 10 years in your undergrad. <laughs> yeah, right. No, mom and dad school. were happy at that point. He's like, oh, he got Direction. a degree. And yeah, exactly. He's doing something. So that was, you know, and that was an interesting thing. And at the time, I didn't really know what I was going to do. I was still very, I had this sort of vague idea. like, oh, I'm going to use my interest in biology when I get to architecture about systems and the green architecture and sustainable architecture. But I had this incredibly life-changing experience, honestly, is we had a design studio. And in doing research for that studio, our class was taken up to the Bronx Zoo where they were working on the Congo Gorilla Forest, which is this huge gorilla exhibit, right, which was a world-changing exhibit from the exhibitory standpoint. But for me, coming into this, it just was this moment where I thought, well, these people are doing something really, really cool. Architecturally, it's really interesting because it's very theatrical and exciting. You know, you're creating these immersive exhibits and you're making people and taking them into different worlds. And at the same time, you know, you're dealing with animals. You're dealing with very practical and pragmatic issues about how do you keep animals and staff safe and all of this other stuff, right? So there's this sort of melding of things I was really interested in. At the same time, it meant that I could work with animals. I could work with people who work with animals. And I could work for an organization that was doing doing this great conservation work, not only in New York, but all over. So it was like, I basically, when I graduated, I threw myself at their mercy, said, you have to hire me. I'm just going to stay here until you hire me. Yeah. And, <laughs> and they did eventually. How many bio slash architecture grads are there out there? Yeah, anyway? yeah no, exactly. So I was few and far between. So I had a capture on that market and, and they were desperate. I mean, yeah. I was hired because they were desperate. And then it just, it was one of those things where it worked out in so many ways. First of all, I worked with great people that, you know, on both sides, right? On the design side and on the animal side, people who I respected and inspired me. And again, it did work out where I felt like, oh, I'm doing something really meaningful and, and in touch with those core interests of mine. And yet I also get up every morning feeling like I'm doing something good for, you know, the larger questions in life. So it just worked my way up. And eventually, you know, the aquarium beckoned and I applied for the director's job and I got it. Oh, so you started at the aquarium as a director. I started, yeah. Before that, I was like, a, I worked in the design department as an architectural designer, a project manager. And then I moved over to the, our capital construction crew and yeah. worked as a project manager there. But I had never taken on anything near the scale of running the aquarium when I got there. Did you like fish when you got there? Well, yeah. So this was the, I think, <laughs> I think my leg up in getting to the aquarium was that while I was working in the exhibit department, again, the exhibit department at the Bronx Zoo does exhibits for all of the facilities at the Wildlife Conservation Society. So I had had the opportunity to work on a few smaller exhibits at the New York Aquarium. And mostly by default, I'd gotten the reputation as, oh, he's the, you know, the aquarium exhibit guy. Okay. So, in doing that, I learned a lot because aquarium exhibitry and aquariums are very different from zoos. I got to know the people. There's, at the, there's the water. There's the water part. <laughs> there's the there's the like, oh, if the pumps and filters aren't done right, everything dies part. It's not like, oh, the air just moves in. And I got to know the people that worked at the aquarium and they were all like really great people and, and really loved this, What you know, in honesty, was sort of this pokey little aquarium, you know, out there in the far reach of New York City out on Coney Island. And it just found like the people there were great. I really was enjoying this, the specialty of aquarium exhibitry. So when the job came up and they were looking and they were looking and they were looking for someone, they couldn't find the right person. And finally, you know, they asked me to apply. I was interested and I got the job. You said that you wake up every morning thinking about the good you're going to do in the world. Yeah. So it's, it's Monday morning. What do you wake up thinking about? What's on your plate? So a lot of what's on my plate now 
falls into two camps. And it's difficult. And this is, gets back to what we were talking about. There's a, such a broad suite of things that I have to be concerned about. Right now, we are working to finish two exhibits, right? And one of them is going to be about invertebrates and the other is going to be sort of a great interactive play zone for children. So I think a lot about that I don't have to think about it so much from the sort of design and construction side anymore. And I'm you know, blessed to work with a really great team of people that still do. From my end, it's more about like, how is this going to impact the guest experience at the aquarium? How is this going to fulfill the broader sort of cohesive experience of the aquarium, the coherent experience of the aquarium? And, you know, when can I get it open? And what's going to be the sort of operational aspects of that in terms of staffing and moving the fish in and make sure the animals are healthy and all of that? So I think a lot about that. At the same time, I've thought over over these last few years, I've had a chance to think more and more deeply about like what is the future of aquariums in the 21st century, and what do we do? Are you know are we more than a Victorian menagerie just showing off animals, you know, and our dominion over animals? And I think we are. And if we are, what is that? And so I think a lot about how do we have a vibrant conservation program that explores the waters and does research in the waters, but more importantly, how do we get the people of New York, whether they come to the aquarium or not, how do we get them engaged and inspired and really excited about the fact that we live in a city of islands and we're surrounded by wildlife? That's pretty cool. The way you describe that, there's sort of the practical, yes. we have to get this exhibit open exactly. part. And then there's the headier philosophical yeah, part. exactly. What fills your inbox? <laughs> what email, uh, yeah. Which of those two are you, what are you answering emails about in the morning? It varies. I mean, I hate to punt that. It varies a lot. But yeah. right now, as we get closer and closer to the deadline, you know, it's like anything else. It's like the Broadway theater, right? It's like the show is going on. So yeah. whether you're ready or not, so you better be ready. So there's a lot of things right now that are of pressing importance. And that takes up a lot of my inbox time. But in terms of my intellectual bandwidth, those things are, you know, they're pretty straightforward questions. Yeah. Of how will we do this? What does it require? Well, what kind of things are you troubleshooting or trying to deal with at the moment? So, you know, we alluded a little bit about this before, but aquarium exhibitry is super complex because you're really talking about something that's really infrastructure heavy. And it's the whole system that's the biological entity, right? It's not just the fish. It's like there's biological activity in the filtration systems and everything else. And that's actually what keeps the system healthy. So you're not just dealing with, okay, you know, it's ready, put the animals in. You're dealing much more with the fact, you know, is the infrastructure of this system working? And there's time that needs to go. All of those things take time, right? First you build it, you plumb it in like a plumber would, but then you fill the tank and you make sure that it's holding temperatures right. And then you've got to seed it with bacteria because the bacteria would actually break down the nitrogenous waste. That bacteria has to be established and that takes a certain amount of time and a certain amount of care and husbandry, right? And then once that's ready and everything's ready, then you can put the fish in, but everything better still be good, right? You know, if, if you lose power overnight and the tank empties out because a siphon formed, then you're in trouble. So there is a tremendous... <laughs> if the tank empties out, that means everything died, right? <laughs> right, exactly. That, that, so you want to avoid that. You want to discover those video problems game's before. Over. Right, exactly. The former director of the New York Aquarium says that's a bad thing. <laughs> so... It's a really complex thing, but at the same time, it's understandable and it's graspable. And it's like, okay, if we do A, then B will follow C, D, and E. And if we do our jobs right, E is going to be spectacular. So there is a way in which that's just about making sure that all the questions are asked, all the answers are gathered, all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. And 
you know, to a great extent, and I, I need to emphasize this, I don't have to do that hands-on as the director, right? I have an animal curator, I have a head of operations, I have a construction team, and I've got an outside construction firm all working on that. But I still need to understand it, and I need to take responsibility for it, and I need to be able to drive that process where appropriate. So that takes up a lot of time. Does that mean imagine. like a lot of meetings where you've got those four people oh. in a room together, or is it... It means that there are regular meetings all the time, and they're, yeah. and they're various sizes. They're one-on-ones, right? Yeah. It's, like, it's like conducting an orchestra, where you really want to know your woodwinds. Everybody's cool, right? And everybody's getting along, and everybody's got a cracked whatever. But at the same time, as you get closer and closer to the actual performance, you're bringing everybody in and making sure everybody's working together, everything's coordinated, everything's going right, and that, you know, Bill can't do his piece if Sarah hasn't got her piece complete yet, and if Sarah's got some delays, that's going to mess Bill up. So you've got to understand all of those aspects of what's going on and you've got to have contingency plans and at the same time as director as you might imagine I'm also thinking about things like well how are we going to market this how are we going to raise money for this if we need to raise money for it how are we going to do press you know I was doing press this morning it's it's all about thinking through you know the very practical and pragmatic sides and then the sort of squishier sides of things like marketing and earned media and all of that do you have like anxiety attacks about whether the fish are going to die like, yeah. Is that something yeah. that you think? No, you, you it's surprising. Like, yeah. So I have this weird sleep pattern, uh, and I'm not alone in this, I'm sure, but I fall asleep like a rock. Like, you cannot keep me up. After 9.30, I'm out. And I will fall asleep like somebody who is dead. And then at 3 o'clock in the morning, I will, like, and sometimes literally, like, clench my body out of bed. Just like, oh, my. And I'm just, I, I'm consumed with anxiety. Like, because there's so many things that could go wrong. Animals could die. All I mean, this is a, it's a huge responsibility. It's not just like, oh, that would be a bad exhibit. It's like, no. These are animals in our care. You know, is this going to go all right? Is this going to work out? That does seem like the big distinction from a zoo is that if something goes wrong at the gorilla exhibit, chances are they're not going to escape. I mean, maybe they'll escape, but there's not going to be havoc. Right. Whereas right. actually all the sharks could die. Yeah, no, exactly. If, if something goes wrong with a tank, whether it's medical, you know, like there's some sort of infection or if it's you know on the infrastructure mechanical side. Yeah, the chances are very good that you're going to lose the entire tank. That's a not only is it catastrophic, you know, from the operational side, but it's just something that we're in this profession because we care about animals and we really care for them. Are there famous cautionary tales in the aquarium world? Like, oh, you should have seen what happened in San Diego in 93 well, or not, something like yeah, that. Yeah, right. Well, there is, of course, the famous incident, and I believe it was in Abu Dhabi, but there was a huge, you know, in many parts of Asia and the Middle East, aquariums are super popular, but they're more about like, like they'll build them in malls and things like that, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're huge attractions, but not not for any sort of conservation reason. And I guess in Abu Dhabi, there was one giant tank where the acrylic failed. The huge windows without any mullions are always acrylic. And the acrylic failed catastrophically and a whole wash of sharks came out and, you know, Blew into the, the oh. shopping center. <laughs> that's that's not my worry, honestly, because that's such that's a, not that's, what you're that's thinking about at three a.m. But you know, there are certainly cautionary tales, and they're usually about. And this is what's so anxiety-inducing about it. They're usually about nothing that anyone did wrong, but something bad happened, right? So you know, at one of the aquariums not too long ago, 
there was an outbreak of something that is fairly common. You know, it's like a protozoan. It comes in on the water and it, it's not life-threatening, but it certainly can be, you know, a long-term problem if it gets established in the tank, these little parasites. So you, what do you do? You do what you would imagine. You treat the water with a type of, not antibiotic, but an anti-protozoal. And that generally, you know, you hold the water at a certain temperature, you treat it and everything's fine. Well, this aquarium had received a batch of this medicine that was mislabeled, either entirely, like it wasn't even what they said it was, or in concentration. But it was mislabeled, so they put it into the tank at the concentrations that they thought it would be, and it was utterly toxic and wiped out the entire tank. And this is, you know, when I say tank, I'm talking about a giant exhibit. So that's the kind of thing that, A, you just feel so much compassion for the people that that happened to because I know how devastating that would be. And B, it's also just like, again, it's like that could happen so easily. It could, you know, it could happen by mistake. It could happen by, you know, malfeasance. It could happen just in any, somebody could fall in a shark exhibit and that would make me super unhappy, right? But if one would hope, yeah, well, it would, but I'm not worried about it because you know, kids, sharks are not that threatening, right? They're not going to get bit, yeah. but it would be a bad scene. But if something happened to that shark exhibit and all the sharks went belly up, I'd be devastated. So at three in the morning, you have your panic attack yeah. and then do you get back to bed or is that? Uh, yeah. So here, so I, I'm one of those terrible people that is naturally an early bird and naturally wakes up really cheery, right? So I get up at 4.30 every morning. So generally <laughs> that is, what happens- reprehensible. What, yes, exactly. What generally happens is I'll wake up at three o'clock, have this incredibly like body clenching anxiety attack. And at the same time, I'm, you know, my rational mind thinking that's not going to happen. It's okay. Just go back to sleep. And I struggle and I struggle and I usually fall back asleep about 4.15 and then my alarm goes off at 4.30. I'm like, ah. And that's, that's, that's the beginning of your day. There you go. That so, starts my Monday, I guess. That goes that's, my Monday. that's Monday. Time for coffee. Coffee and some existential <laughs> yeah, exactly. terror. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply. I saw you rode in here on a, on a motorcycle. Yes, I did. Is that how you get to work most days? During the summer, spring, and fall, yeah. So you have your existential terror, your coffee, you get on your get motorcycle, on motorcycle, head to work. Yes, which is brain clearing. The best part of my day, maybe. Do you kind of walk around 
check out the animals at all or do you what do you do? Not necessarily first thing when I get there. First thing when I get there, again, my boring part of my job is just that sort of I check my email, you know, I do what what needs to be done. But I've usually got stuff percolating pretty rapidly. And a lot of that is these kind of check-ins, right? So it's either staff meetings or LSS meetings or animal management meetings, right? Where there's they're sort of groups of supervisorial personnel who are both informing each other about what's going on. Because again, all of these things are interrelated. You can't like forget about the plumbing because that affects the animals. And so they got to know what each other are doing. So I'm sort of seeing how that fits all together and keeping myself informed, but also overseeing that interdepartmental communication that's so important in something like this. So yeah. a lot of it is, a lot of it honestly is that. And then I usually don't get to walking around the park unless I'm really in a bad mood until like later in the afternoon because I like to see it when people are in it because I like to see how the guest experience is working or not working and where we're having troubles or what things are going really well and the people are responding the way you hope they would. You said unless you're in a bad mood. Yeah. If I'm in a bad mood, sometimes I will just walk around the park. And I think this is actually an interesting fact, because even after 11 years of being the director of the New York Aquarium, I still have the same response to many of these exhibits that people who are coming for the first time do, which is, you know, almost a meditative state that you can get into just looking at these beautiful animals in these sort of peaceful settings. If I'm having a really bad day or I'm in a bad mood or I'm struggling with something that I really want to be calm about, I will just go and look at some of the exhibits, even to this day. Do you have a particular fish you like to meditate with? Well, it used to be, believe it or not, we have this this beautiful cardinal tetra tank, which is, you know, what you would see in your home aquarium. And they're cool animals. But if you have like 500 of them in a cloud in a large tank that's beautifully planted, it's breathtaking. I mean, it's just like it just sort of puts you in this great space of contemplation and peace. That used to be my favorite. But I have to say, since we've opened the new shark exhibit, we have this massive Canyon's Edge exhibit, right, which actually talks about the Hudson Canyon, which is right offshore New York here. It's the largest submarine canyon in all of the Atlantic coast. It's just a fabulous place. And this exhibit that we've built has this 40 feet by 14 foot window into this massive canyon and it's filled with sharks and it's filled with large fish and schools of small fish and a sea turtle. And that is almost a game changer in terms of how you see people respond to what we're doing and what we want them to feel. Because I can go in there and feel it, but I almost as powerful for me as watching other people feel it. Yeah. It sounds like that exhibits a big jump in your ambition. Yeah. You yeah. That. No, exactly. That's so, yeah. a, like a, it's kind of like a Pride thing, too. Yeah, to go well, yeah, and, yeah, exactly. Look what we did. Yeah. Do you do a daily walk usually to just kind of like I try to. You know, if I'm perfectly honest, and Jordan, yeah. I'm being perfectly honest, I used to be really, you know, disciplined about that. Like there was not a day that I didn't go out and do a really uh, intentional walkthrough. Over the last three years, it's become more and more like I do it on my way to somewhere else. You know, I'm busier in terms of my schedule, and so I'm usually on the move somewhere, and I just sort of do it as an internet group. When you are doing a walkthrough, are you looking for specific things that might be wrong? Are you mm. are you telling people something doesn't look right in that tank or people are reacting weirdly to this? Well, I do two things. One is I want to make sure that people are responding in the right way. So like a lot of times it was, we have this moment 
for about nine months of the year during the school year, right? From 10 a.m. when we open till one o'clock in the afternoon, we are mobbed with school kids. And then they come in by the busload. And that's what you did when you were a child, Jordan. And I want to make sure when kids are coming through that door that they are excited. You know, it's probably the best part of my job because they're coming through and they haven't seen anything yet. And they're so excited. A lot of times they are jumping up and down in unison shouting, we're going to see sharks. We're going to see sharks. We're going to see sharks. I remember that feeling. Yeah. And that's yeah. so I want to make sure that, you know, we've accommodated that, right? And that people are coming in not even before they got there, not stressed out about either the line or the parking or the drop-off or whatever it might be. But then, yeah, as I walk through them, as you might imagine, I'm flipping back and forth between good and bad. So I'm looking at the things that work and I'm thinking, great, that is working the way we want it to. But I'm also, I mean, you know, let's face it, it's like anything else. There's plenty of things that I have problems with or that I'm disappointed with or that I think aren't right. And a lot of times I'm looking to check to see if that's just me or if that's the public too. Because a lot of times we can see things that other people don't notice. I've seen it so much. I can see every flaw. Like give me an example of something you would notice that the public just totally passes by. One of the things that I notice, for example, particularly is like the cleanliness of tanks in terms of algae growth. Algae growth can look quite natural, right? But it can also sometimes make a tank look less than great. And it's a it's something that keepers are very busy people and they're doing a lot of things and their primary care is the animal. So not every aquarist or keeper is as aesthetically engaged as I would like them to be, right? They're not always looking at the exhibits from the standpoint of, oh, this has to look beautiful for the public. They're looking at it from, is it okay for the animals? So there's a lot of times where I will look at things and I'll think like, boy, that needs to be better planted or better cared for or that, you know, why did they put that power head where you could see it or whatever? And yet I look at the public and all they're doing is like going, oh, look at that fish. That is so cool. So, you know, maybe I'm I'm the one that's too picky there. You start your day with, you know, the sort of logistics, the the regular emails are coming in about the exhibits, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then you go, you work your way down to right. the algae on the glass. Right. That's occupying your brain space. When do you get to the more philosophical stuff about what you can be as a conservation you know, project? Yeah, never enough. And that's a problem, right? Because it's something that really requires, I think. Um, and how does that translate in your like, what, what kind of specific things are you doing that, that so, you get to focus that energy into? It boils down these days to trying to articulate. And in that articulation, sometimes that's in fundraising, you know, straightforward, or yeah. sometimes it's in awareness building, or it's in sort of the establishment of the relationships either, you know, with partners who are doing the same kind of thing or with the public that's interested in it. But sort of articulating this very interesting idea, which is that we live in one of the great human migrations of all time, and people don't talk about that, which is this this movement of humanity into the urban areas. The world is becoming increasingly urbanized. And if you take that fact, right, which is a snapshot in time of more and more people living in more and more concentrated urban areas, and you overlay that with this interesting fact, which is, you know, because of historical settlement patterns, almost all major urban areas are located on a navigable water body, right? Because that's how cities got established. You come up with this really interesting fact is that almost all cities have wildlife around them. It's just not on the terrestrial side anymore. It's in the water. And so as somebody who's really interested in wildlife conservation and looks at the world through that lens, I see it as this opportunity to engage not only people in the idea of like, oh, there's wildlife and we should be involved in it, but a deeper question of how do we establish a culture in a city that feeds into a new thinking about what does a quality of life look like in an urban area that 
means an attachment to this wildlife and the places around us. And you can actually see that happening in New York. It's really interesting. If you go out and you go around Manhattan on one of those tourist cruises, right, that we never do except if we have someone in town, and you look back at the city from the water, you realize that the whole edge of the city, and this is all boroughs, is being remade. All of the old industrial edge of the city is being torn down so that people can live there and, you know, have recreational opportunities there and can get engaged with the water. They can kayak. They can do all this stuff, right? And I think that's indicative of people wanting to feel even in an urban setting, connected to nature. So for me, that's a great opportunity to be a spokesman for this idea of an urban ocean ethic, a spokesman for the underlying reality that part of that connection to nature and that valuing of nature is realizing all the wildlife that is still around us, even in a city of 8 million, and then talking about how that connection works to create both a economic basis that's really important, right? A blue economy. But that blue economy is predicated on a thriving and healthy ocean system. So when we're talking about the philosophical end of things, that gets translated into what exhibits you're going to pick and says, it's like, okay, that's why you're doing kind of the local Hudson. Yeah, but even more than that, the Hudson Canyon and, and and the wildlife of New York But like we're not going to build another $150 million exhibit anytime soon. But what we are going to continue to do is do research out in those waters and have stories to tell back at the aquarium, whether it is, you know, as you go through an exhibit or a programming sort of curriculum event that we can do through our education department or with our Wildlife Conservation Corps, which is our team docents. All of those things are ways to not only further that message, but engage our audience in this idea that you're going to come here, you're going to get inspired, and then you're going to be our advocates to go out and talk to others about what you've learned here and get involved. So it's a it's a powerful and iterative process to go through and to think about, you know, how that intersects with things like technology, how that intersects with all these other aspects that we go through so that it is much more than a visit to the aquarium. And that's what I'm thinking about all the time. It's like, it's great. At the aquarium, you come in through the door and I got you. But what if you never come to the aquarium or you've only been to the aquarium when you were six and you went with your school and now you're, you know, 20-something living in the city and wondering like, well, what's here for me to get involved and passionate about? How do you decide to acquire a fish? (laughs) You don't go down to the market. <laughs> no, there, there is no fish or us where you can just go pick them off the shelf. It's very interesting. It's driven by the thinking of like, well, what do you want to represent in terms of a zoogeographic region? If you're going to tell people about the beautiful you know, reef off of the coast of Belize, you can't have any fish in there that aren't from the Caribbean. So that's one aspect of it, right? It's like, what's the story we want to tell and what are the species that fit into that story? Not only from the standpoint of are they there, but also can you care for them? Do we have the husbandry expertise? Is this system good for them and all this? Not every species or type of animal is amenable to the conditions that you find at an aquarium. So those are sort of also choices that we make. And then also I think, you know, there is that aspect of guest experience. So it's lions and tigers and bears on a zoo side. So you got to have walruses, you got to have marine mammals, you got to have sharks, you know, you got to have penguins, you got to have sea turtles, all those things. So you sort of think about what should you have from a guest experience and guest inspiration standpoint. Like logistically, is there like a, is there a a fish pitch meeting at some point where you all say like, (laughs) you know, like, 
Okay, like how does like, I think the sturgeon will be fine. Yeah, yeah I no, mean, like, I like it, the, yeah. How does that? How does that go down? Yeah, there's kind of a. I mean, I wouldn't say there's a pitch meeting, but yeah, there's a lot of discussions about like, well, we could get X, Y, or Z, and not all fish are created equal in the sense of like, well, what's going to get people excited? What's yeah. going to be cool? What's going to look great in this exhibit? What's appropriate? Who who on your staff are you talking to about that? This is generally a conversation that I would have with my animal curator, um, and he's the one that is sort of making these larger expertise decisions about like, oh, yeah, we could keep that and, oh, yeah, we could acquire that and, oh, yeah, that would, you know, that would be found in that area. And then once we get to that aspect of so we could choose from species A, B, C, and D, that's when we might get into a discussion of like, yeah, but, you know, C is kind of a boring brown fish and A is popping in color and really looks great and, you know, would display really well. So there is that aspect of talking about it. Is there sort of a give and take there between like zoological (laughs) value and just like... Yeah, I get told quite a bit that we can't do that. (laughs) What's a reason you haven't been able to get a fish you wanted? For one thing, you know, we have to acquire these animals and not every animal is equally accessible, right? And in this case of like tropical fish and things like that, tropical marine species, there are actually specialized collectors who go out and get these animals off of reefs or whatever that under really careful conditions that meet our standards. So not every animal is able to be acquired that way. Yeah. I mean, is there is that typically how you get wildlife is through someone who kind of goes so, into the wild and yeah, traps? Or? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting and, and somewhat different difficult fact that, you know, for aquariums, for the most part, and it's not completely true there, especially on the freshwater side, there's a lot of animals that we can propagate in captivity, right? I mean, they have pretty simple lifestyles or life cycles. But on the marine side, especially with the fish species, you're talking about animals that are, you know, you can collect them sustainably and you can use them to tell a story to protect large wild populations, but you still have to acquire them from the wild. And that's a that's a little bit uncomfortable story for some people to realize at some point. Well, what's a fish that you, you wanted but couldn't get? Can no, I don't know if it was that I wanted it so much as that I think all of us think like, oh, that would look, that would be so great. You know, people are are constantly drawn to the unusual and certainly in New York, Believe it or not, we again, there's 26 species of sharks found in New York, and some of those are hammerheads, huh. you know, including scalloped hammerheads and great hammerheads. And I frankly would love to see either one of those species on exhibit at the aquarium because I think they're really fabulous animals and they're really cool. The kids love them. Kids love them. Yeah. Uh, the director loves them. But we have, for lots of good reasons, just decided like, no, that's not a species that we want to. Yeah. I think what it is more than anything else is if we're not 100%, 150% sure that the exhibit that we have meets all the requirements of that animal, then we're not going to have it on display. So the concern with the hammerhead is it, it would die. Yeah, that it would be inappropriate to hold an animal like that in the, under the conditions that we have. And it's usually about like the size of the pool or the swim patterns that the pool you know presents or whatever that is. So, so it wouldn't be able to kind of go about its daily routine. Yeah. Or so, something. for example, people I, – I, this is not an animal that I've ever asked to acquire because I know a little bit. But people ask all the time, as you might imagine, any shark enthusiast, the first thing they say is, do you have any great whites here at the aquarium? And when they hear the word no, they're like, when are you going to get some great whites at the aquarium? Because that would be so cool. And the truth is, you know, with great whites or makos or any of these pelagic species, which are open water species, it's just not appropriate to have them in almost any sort of containment, right? Because they're animals that are just free swimming. They just swim in a line for thousands of miles. And that's not a condition that you can recreate in an aquarium. 
But, for example, a sandbar shark, which we do have on exhibit, which is a local species, is an animal that is a coastal shark that moves in and out of really tight spaces and is very comfortable and evolved to do that. So they're very comfortable and happy in the kinds of conditions that we can recreate at the aquarium. What is your worst meeting of the week? (laughs) (laughs) The one you look forward to least. What is my worst meeting of the week? You're going to get me in trouble, Jordan. It's not the worst meeting of the week, but I I do have to say, like, I believe uh, strongly in the value of communication and face-to-face communication and everything else. But, uh, you know, I'm sure you and everybody who's listening to this understands this. There are days when you start out with a to-do list of, say, 10 things, and you spend all day in a meeting or meetings adding to that to-do list. So at the end of the day, now your to-do list is 20 things and you haven't crossed any of the first 10 off yeah. and you just feel like, well, I'm going backwards. So do you, you sort of have an open door policy, it sounds like? Oh, I, yeah, totally. And quite literally open door. Just yeah, So who's coming in through that door in the course of a day typically? All of my staff are welcome to, but my meetings are with the supervisorial staff, my yeah. manage, you know, sort of the management levels, yeah. you might think. And a lot of that is there's group meetings and then, you know, there's individual, again, it's like working with an orchestra. Like I got to meet with the woodwind I got to meet with the first chair of the violins because I got to know the violins are doing okay or the violins have problems. We got to talk about it. So every single one of my supervisorial or management staff comes through my door as they should. And then a lot of times, and I'm, I guess, a little proud of this. I hope everybody else is too. It'll be a lot of my frontline staff, the keepers. Even some of the, the docents or volunteers will come in and talk to me sometimes because I think I'm probably getting a much broader and more realistic picture of what's going on by talking to everybody and getting an idea from a different perspective of how we're doing. I can, I often sit there and, you know, pat myself on the back, think we're really doing great. And I'll stop and talk to like one of my keepers or one of the, the operation staff. And they'll just tell me like, Oh, that's not going well at all. You know? And I, I said, Oh really? Cause it seemed fine. And so it's, I think, I think that's really important to have a broad uh, and wide ranging set of perspectives that you're, you're taking in so you can formulate your own. So you, you've tried to uh, create a culture where people feel free to share bad news or complain. Yeah. I don't I, I yeah, I don't think I've ever been that sort of explicit about it. Like, come in and share your bad news, but it's. <laughs> oh, I mean, you have, you have to, <laughs> right? Because, like, yeah, but you it, don't want people hiding. If, if right, no, but it's I, the one actually trouble. one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was from the WCS chief financial officer, and her motto was always, bad news needs to travel fast. And I think that's a really smart thing, particularly in our business, whereas we are saying, you know, things can go south pretty rapidly. If somebody's like, oh, gee, I hope that's going to be okay. You got to be really forthcoming with any problems you're having. You got to be really forthcoming with deadlines that are missed or things that are delayed or whatever, because the repercussions of any of that can be really wide ranging and ultimately wind up with our collection. Coming back to... um potential disasters. <laughs> okay. You have to spend a lot of time thinking about plumbing, right? I mean, like, yeah. Plumbing, it seems like it's like really... Yes, it's a lot like the human body in yeah. that way, isn't it? Like, it all <laughs> comes at the end of the all... day. It's all like, oh, yeah, I'm having these great thoughts, but I, the plumbing is... Yeah, I mean, how much... How I... complicated is the plumbing? Oh, it's incredibly complicated. Seriously, it is. Yeah. Because... You know, again, these beautiful, peaceful, contemplative exhibits that we were talking about that, you know, get people inspired and are filled with beautiful animals that are happy and healthy all rely on this sort of base 
nuts and bolts construction behind it, which is this incredibly complicated set of filtration that includes things like protein fractionators and ozone injectors and UV bulbs that this thing runs through. It's all this finely tuned machine. And as any sort of mechanical system, there's almost an infinitude of ways in which it can go south, right? So you got so people are always on it, people are always monitoring it. And the the again, the anxiety producing thing is it could be running fine and then overnight some, you know, we could have a power outage or something could fail or whatever. And that's when it gets scary. Is that thing being monitored like twenty four seven or Yeah. It's being mo- so there's two things and and again, thank God for technology. So as one of the changes that has occurred in the aquarium profession writ large is an increasing sort of automation of our systems. And that comes from the standpoint of my operations director now can basically pull up every single system at the aquarium on his smartphone or his iPad and actually adjust valves or change flows or see that something needs to be adjusted, move temperatures up and down, et cetera. And that's all like in the last 10 years, five, 10 years, right, where this automation has become so sophisticated and so well integrated into these systems that we can control them from afar. Having said that, though, we also have 24-7 security patrols around the aquarium. So we have patrols that go through all of these spaces and look to make sure that everything's running. They're not trained because they're security folks. They're not necessarily trained to do the plumbing if something's wrong, but they're trained to get on the phone really quick with somebody else, describe what's happening, and be able to respond to directions telling them, well, flip that and you see that green handle right there turn that to the left do you ever get a late night phone call or is that only if something really bad has happened have you ever gotten a late night what's a late night phone call you've gotten and you know honestly they're mostly heartbreaking ones so the new york aquarium had wonderful walrus um that was born at the aquarium a little walrus calf aki tusek and um he was just a really great guy and every and he had a lot of press and a lot of attention and everything was great and he got sick when he was about two years old you know passed away overnight at like 2 a.m in the morning and i got that call for a lot of reasons but a lot of it is just like because people are really distraught and really looking for someone to understand and to respond to that situation i mean i think in some ways that was sort of the big lessons around leadership that I had there was just knowing it's like it's not so much that I'm going to go out there and do something they couldn't do but rather I'm going to go out there and say like yeah we all feel this way and I'm you know we're going to figure it out together and we'll we'll handle this but, do you remember who you got that call from almost certainly from my animal curator but it may have been actually from one of the supervisors who were on duty cuz if any animal gets sick they're usually on 24 hour watch so we would have actually had somebody and if he was in trouble as he was we probably had four or five people in with him working on him, including the veterinary staff at that point. So so you would, at that point, you went back to the... Yeah. So, you know, two o'clock in the morning, I got out and drove in and, you know, we had to figure out some really, you know, straightforward stuff. How do you get this big animal out of the back holding area that he was in? How big was he? Uh, at that point, he was probably about six or 700 pounds. You know, he's just, oh, wow. just two years old. He's just a little baby. Yeah, still, it's a big... Yeah, right. And, you know, moving it through these spaces, how do you get it loaded onto a truck and iced down so we can drive it up to the Bronx Zoo where we would do a necropsy on an animal that big? Mm-hmm. Um, and and just, and just also, how do you come together as a, as a group of people who care about this animal in that moment and do the things that need to be done, but also support each other? Did you have to give a kind of a 
speech or something at that point or like I don't know. A rally I, the troops yeah, kind of thing, I don't know or? if I would call it a speech but yeah you got to I mean you know you have to yeah be willing to acknowledge all of that and somebody's got to take the lead in doing that do you do it with an animal that dies the whole veterinary thing is incredibly interesting so these animals are treated with the kind of healthcare that you and I just wish we could even get a whiff of because they are from the time they are in the aquarium's care until they leave this mortal coil they are cared for at the highest health standards. But when they die, um, we have veterinary pathologists who take almost every single animal that dies in the aquarium's care from a tiny little cardinal tetra up to a walrus, and they perform a necropsy on it. And what they're doing is just like a pathologist would do, right? It's an autopsy, but for an animal, we call it a necropsy. So they're basically dissecting that animal, taking a look both you know, in the large scale about what might have been the cause of death or what was the obvious cause of death, and then also taking various large and small portions of organs and blood and things like that and sending that out to labs to have it diagnosed for if there was, you know, any bacterial infections or anything like that. So it's a really detailed sort of look at what may have been the cause of death. And then we report all of that out on a weekly meeting with all of five of the facilities gathered together, all the animal staffs, to talk about just in the same way hospitals do grand rounds or something, right? You talk about the case, you talk about how it was treated, you talk about what the cause of death was, and you discuss any lessons that were learned or could be learned from that. And you preside over that meeting? I preside over that meeting because we do it at the aquarium, just within the aquarium animal staff. Yeah. And then I'm part of that meeting that is presided over by my boss yeah. up at the Bronx Zoo that is all five facilities together. It's the Grey's Anatomy meeting. Yeah, no, exactly. Without, <laughs> for the without the romance. You were director during Sandy. Yeah. That was pretty devastating. It was really devastating. I mean, and you know, the thing that was most devastating about it for me personally was how quickly it went from, oh, isn't this an exciting adventure to, oh my God, this is the worst thing that I've ever lived through. Well, so tell me what happened to the aquarium during that. So, you know, we're on the beach and we're accustomed to weather. And, you know, I mean, even just the year before Sandy, if most people don't remember, but there was a Hurricane Irene that came right over the city. And so it's kind of an exciting adventure time, right? You go out there, there was 18 of us. The aquarium is closed, which in and of itself is unusual. And we've got the place all buttoned down. We spent days sandbagging everything that you think might be vulnerable. You've stocked a bunch of food for the animals. You brought in oxygen canisters in case we lose power and you need to get oxygen onto the exhibits. And you've brought in food for the staff and everybody's like, you know, got their sleeping bag. So it's pretty exciting. It's like, yeah, it's going to be an adventure, storm riders. And it goes from that to watching water come in and keep rising and rise over, not only over the sandbags, but into areas that we never sandbagged because they'd never been hit with any kind of water and keep rising. And all of a sudden I'm standing in my office with water up to my waist and out in the hallway, I can see that water rushing down the staircases into the basement spaces that are filled with animals and filled with electrical equipment and filled with everything that keeps the aquarium running. And I'm just thinking in that moment, we've lost the aquarium, right? And the only thing I can do at that point is get on the radio and say, everybody get to high ground and be safe until this, you know, until we see where this goes. Did you lose any animals? Well, yeah, we lost some. Uh, it's surprisingly how little we lost, actually, because... Of those sort of 12,000 animals that we have at the aquarium we talked about, we probably rescued about 85% of the collection, made it through not only the storm but through the months afterwards when we were without power and, and it was an incredibly difficult time. But the animals that we lost, we lost probably in that first hour post-storm because mm -hmm. as the storm surge came up, there was a number of sort of aquaculture tubs. We've been working on a, a koi exhibit 
We'd been ref- refreshing it. So there was about three or four of these big aquaculture tanks filled with koi carp, which are freshwater fish. And the surge came in and just inundated that and not only washed the animals out of the tanks, but, you know, they're freshwater fish. And it's I re- remember, yeah, yeah, and it was a saltwater surge, obviously. And I remember that being really sort of like gut wrenching because you could see these animals struggling in those first moments after and just thinking, like, oh my God, this is not just bad, but there's, a, you know, we're going to lose animals and this is going to be terrible. And then uh, there was some other exhibits. You know, the the way we handle it, I talked about we had oxygen canisters brought in prior to the storm because if you lose power, that means you lose the ability to filter the water. And one of the biggest things that comes out of that is your water quality starts to degrade, right? So, and in the loss of movement of that water, the, one of the first things that starts to degrade is you start to lose dissolved oxygen. And yeah. it's just like you and me, we need oxygen to breathe. So do aquatic animals. So if the oxygen drops too low, they'll suffocate. So the first thing, you know, within two hours of the storm after the surge, it had gone down even a little bit, is we got out to those oxygen canisters that were deployed around the aquarium at all the exhibits. And you just crack open the canister, you drop an air stone in the water, right? And you can keep the dissolved oxygen level up. So we did that everywhere and we kept everything going. But even in those first two hours, there was a few exhibits, probably two or three, that just as soon as we lost power, just rapidly went south and dissolved oxygen dropped down to, you know, fatal levels. And we just lost everything in that tank. So there was a couple, two or three exhibits where we lost all the animals in there, but almost everything else we saved. How long was the aquarium without power after that? Three months. How did you keep running it for free? Well, that was, you know, that was the big... You said, I mean, the oxygen depends on it. Yeah. So again, so we had all these oxygen canisters. So for a couple of days, we could keep everything going. Our first job was, you know, in terms of assessing how we were going to get out of this mess was like, well, what can we get back running, right? Because we lost so much stuff, but there was some that we either had, you know, stock, you know, in the warehouse or whatever that we could pull in and get it... And we had small emergency generators. And then within the first four or five days after the storm, as soon as the roads were passable, we started receiving big, you know, commercial generators and big commercial pumps, mobile pumps from the Bronx Zoo and from other places. And, you know, we were incredibly fortunate to have a whole organization throw every resource they needed to behind it to get us through that time. So we brought in these big generators, we wired them in, we replaced what we could replace or cleaned what we could replace and got things started. So we got like partial filtration on most of the stuff. But even then, you know, you're keeping generators going and and you can't keep too much load on them. So you got to sort of shift things on and off, run some stuff for a while, stop, run other stuff. So it was a 24-hour-a-day operation for three and a half months after the storm just to get back to power. It's just like you're running a rescue Yeah, no, it's exactly what it was. For months on end. Yeah, and for me, one of the most difficult and inspiring parts of the whole thing is, so as you know, it wasn't just Coney Island and not just the aquarium that got wiped out. It was, you know, huge parts of the city, but South Brooklyn in particular got hit really, really hard. And as you might imagine, the aquarium being located where it is, a lot of my staff live in South Brooklyn. So there was about 10 of my staff members who lost their own homes in Sandy. And almost all of those folks were still coming in and working 24-hour shifts at the aquarium because that's what they do and that's what their primary concern is, right, is taking care of the animals that were still going. And it wasn't until months later that they would be taking the time off to deal with their own homes and stuff. So that was quite poignant and it was inspiring and it was saddening at the same time. Well, we were talking about potential disasters. I I think that's 
that's as bad as it gets. Yeah. And that's not the 3 a.m. anxiety because that's a four-day long lead anxiety, <laughs> right? Because you just see it's so amazing, the weather reports, the way it works now is you just – it's a slow-motion disaster. It's just coming. It's coming. It's coming. Do you, it's every time like, there's a storm now, do you feel yeah, a little bit of yeah. you're wondering, is that yeah. the next one? And because we're still under construction post-Sandy seven years later, there's still some areas which will be eventually completely rebuilt better than before in terms of storm resiliency that are still somewhat vulnerable. So if we had a massive storm roll in, we'd be scrambling to try to get things that are still wiped out from Sandy protected. So that's something I worry about all the time. John, thank you for coming in here and talking about all this. It's been really, really fascinating. Well, thanks, Jordan. It was a, it was great. I hope, uh, I hope I did credit to the fascinating world of the New York Aquarium because it's a really wonderful place to work. That's it for this week's episode of Working. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, as always, please leave a review at Apple Podcasts. And if you have questions, comments, suggestions, email me. I'm at working at slate.com. A special thank you to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. As usual, Working is produced by Jessamyn Molly. I'm Jordan Weissman. We'll catch you next week.